0: So another fun episode. We're going back East Coast this time. We're talking with John Keggy who's an orthopedic surgeon, private practice in uh, the Waterbury, Connecticut area, where he specializes in hip and knee uh, reconstruction. He's been doing this thing for over thirty years. Uh, he's an anterior hip specialist. He likes tourniquet-free uh, um, uh, total knee replacements. He's a contemporary when it comes to opioid sparing philosophy. With our good friend Sanjay Sinha as well, doing anesthesia. He's just a, a really wise, knowledgeable person in the setting of what's happening and evolved in total joint replacement. He passes on some great advice for patients as well as for doctors. It's a great episode. I know you're going to like it. Hashtag From
1: medical media, this is The Author Show.
0: Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. We're going to go East Coast today. We're going to stick around here in Connecticut. We have Dr. John Keggy, who's an orthopedic surgeon, private practice in Waterbury, Connecticut and surrounding towns, who specializes in both uh, hip and knee reconstruction. John, it is a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Great, Scott. Thanks for be- thanks for inviting me. Great to be
0: here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I think our, our connection is Lara Wynn, who I like to call the Batwoman. She has the best black book in the business. She knows all of the greatest people at orthopedics, and she's always given us great ideas. So if Lara Wynn thinks, th- thinks that you're a special dude, man, we're really thrilled to have you on the program. <laughs> well, great to be here. She's terrific. No, she is. She really is. So so, look, I want to start with with something that we share. Uh, we always go through everybody's sort of CV of their education history. So you're, you're a University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, undergrad, uh, a graduate from 1984. And my son, Caleb, is at Celery Hall right now as a freshman yeah. at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he is having a good old time. So uh, what a
1: great place to go to school. It's a great place to be a college student. It's a great college town. Lots of fun stuff, probably stuff you don't want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> That's already started.
0: Trust me. I mean, his third day of school. He was at the university. He was at the Wisconsin Penn State game at Camp Randall Stadium. I'm yeah. like, oh my god, how much fun is that?
1: And then, uh, the student section is raucous.
0: It is raucous. They got that jumping thing now that they're doing between the uh, third and fourth quarters. That's been going on. That's a lot of fun. The whole stadium goes crazy, especially the student section. But uh State Street brats and all that great stuff. What a what a great place to go and hang out for sure.
1: On the Celery Hall, that's the Southeast dorms. That's a, you know, a big social center.
0: Oh, oh yeah. Now I guess they have these private dorm things, too, that they've got going on. So next year, he's already looked into it. Some of these brilliant developers built these towers with two, three and four bedroom You know, dorm rooms literally right on campus. So you can be right there and have some some privacy and cool stuff too. But he's already he's already lost his wallet, he's already lost his keys, but he's still in school. So far, he's got straight A's. So so far, so good. (laughs) Oh, but that's all great stuff. So you stuck around Wisconsin for medical school, and then you came. So you're like the Connecticut Wisconsin Highway here, you know, and then you came back to Yale for for your residency as well. So uh You've been making that transition back and forth, and and now you're in private practice. But I think what's really interesting, I was looking at your your fellowship trail. So, so you did a pediatric fellowship before you decided to do joints. Talk talk to us about those because I, th- I think that's kind of an interesting path.
1: Yeah, part of my residency was a rotation up at Newington Children's Hospital, which was a great place uh, here in Connecticut. It used to be the Connecticut I think, crippled Children's Hospital, it goes back uh, you know m- well over a century, and then. Uh, into the early 1800s even, I think, and it was a great place, and I had great mentors there, and pediatric orthopedics is really classical orthopedics, you know, I mean, it's it's osteotomies, which is cutting the bone and realigning things, it's, it's old-time orthopedics, uh, and it's really, you know, helping kids and families, and it was a lot of fun, so I really enjoyed that and uh, thought that was the direction I would go. Uh, of course, you know, my uncle uh, was a joint surgeon, and I didn't want to be a copycat, I was already in orthopedics just because I loved it, but I didn't want to necessarily go right into joints. And uh, I was doing Newington, uh, having a great time there as a resident. Then I went to my fellowship there and stayed on staff. But then uh, just as all of healthcare has been consolidating, uh, that process started in the pediatric orthopedic world as well. And Newington Children's Hospital then merged with uh, the University of Connecticut and with Hartford Hospital. They created uh, Connecticut Children's Medical Center, which is a really a great advanced care facility, but it wasn't the old Newington and it wasn't structured quite in a way that would work out for me. I was the youngest guy there and it was going from a kind of a private practice model, which I really liked to one that was more institutional and just not so suited for me. So I, uh, started looking around and my uncle said he was looking for somebody. So I, uh, came to Waterbury and did a fellowship with him and then, uh, joined his practice and I've been doing, uh, joints, uh, since then.
0: So it's interesting. So, I mean, so it's in the family here. So, I mean, your father, your, I'm sorry, your uncle was a, a well-renowned uh, you know, orthopedic surgeon that did hip replacements. So was, was orthopedics in your blood early on? Was that something that you knew you wanted to do?
1: Well, originally I, I thought in high school, I was going to go into law. Uh, and then uh, uh, just thinking about it, I really liked science. Uh, I decided I had to go to medical school, but again, didn't want to be the copycat. So, but in orthopedics, on my orthopedic rotation, third year, uh, I had such a great time. I said, uh, it must be in my blood. Uh, you know, I love what this is. This just seems like if I'm going to be, you know, working for the next 50 years, this is what I want to do.
0: Yeah, no, it is a, it is a, a totally awesome job. No, I think there was some, a bird dropped in my ear again, I, I, before I forget. But uh, uh, from what I understand, I think that I hear that you're hitting the Peloton pretty hard these days. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, when the pandemic started, I I thought, well, first off, it's, you know, it was if you're overweight, that's a potential problem. And I, I had a few pounds I could drop. So I, you know, got on the bike. We weren't doing surgery for a couple of months. I got on the bike and then, uh, Loved it, and uh, yeah, I do the Peloton. Uh, it's good. I, I'm good in the distance. I'm not so good in the sprints.
0: <laughs> I love the Peloton. It's it's funny with the pandemic. It was like everybody either gained twenty five pounds or they lost twenty five pounds. Yeah. It was just dependent on, on what direction that you wanted to go, right? But right. yeah, big. Always been a big fan of the Peloton. We're we're I'm on every day if I can. And uh, that's
1: awesome.
0: Unfortunately, it's you know it's it's down to twenty minutes in the morning pre surgery, but try to get in longer runs if you can. Exactly. Yeah, it's all good stuff. Oh, one other thing, do you, was Bill Pennington a a, a name that comes to, to mind? He's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine, orthopedic surgeon from Milwaukee, but also born and bred in Wisconsin, about well, our age.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that rings a bell. Maybe it rings a <laughs> bell. but I don't, I don't know if I can't, can't pick, put a face to it.
0: No, super guy. He actually has ortholaser. laser. He owns our facility uh-huh. out in Milwaukee. And so he's uh, become a dear friend of mine. And Great. You know, I, 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 I always joke around, you know, it's like, you know, in New Yorkers in Boston, it's like if you walk around and somebody says, "Hey, how you doing?" People just assume they're either going to want to stab you or ask you for something. But Wisconsin people are like, "Hey, we're good. Hey, how are you? How's your day going?" And they really mean it. So I love, I love it. I thought maybe there was a connection, but so, so you stick around in Waterbury, you, you do your fellowship with your uncle, and then it's total joints. So that's where you're going to go. One of the things I, I thought you and I would talk about because I think we have a very uh, uh, shared history as far as our chronology. I think you're two years older than I am, but. You know, when we first came out of residency and fellowship, we were told, you know, orthopedics is painful, right? And, and you have a responsibility to your patients to make sure that they're out of pain. And let's face it, you know, hip and joint, hip and knee replacements, a little less so now, but back in the day, we're making big incisions and, you know, it really hurt. People are staying in the hospital three days and then they were going to rehab for a week, things like that. But we were told, you know, you, you got to make sure you give people, you know, pain medication, you got to give them lots of opioids, because otherwise, they're, you know, they're going to be in pain It's going to be an issue. What was your experience? Was it similar to mine that it was just like, you just sort of, we just got we just got roped into, we just started doing what everybody else was doing.
1: That was definitely the background. I mean, that was just it was painful. We weren't doing the things that we do today. But I was very fortunate in in training with my uncle, though, because for whatever reason, he had a different point of view. And he was, uh, you know, opioid sparing long before it was at all uh, a thing. I mean, he was, he took a lot of heat for it, but his patients did so well. And I think some of it was, uh, he was doing uh, direct anterior approach surgery. He was doing tourniquetless total knees back then. Things that we now know can be helpful uh, to reduce pain and inflammation. And uh, he was also a master surgeon, but he had those ideas and, and pass them along to all the residents that came through his program and and to me and and others and so it was great that when we got into this uh the whole uh, oxycontin business and that uh, fortunately we we were able to stay out, out of some of that and then when the pendulum swang, uh swung back uh you know we were in pretty good shape but you're right that was there was a lot of pressure to prescribe a lot of narcotics and have these patients zonked out on PCAs and they were puking and it was just awful.
0: Yeah. You know, pain became a vital sign. I mean, a vital sign is supposed to be the most objective thing that you can, you can measure it. It's there, but pain's about as subjective as, as it gets, you know, I like the cell phone test now, you know, forget about smiley faces. If they're, if you walk in the PACU and they're on the cell phone, then their yes. pain's well controlled. They're doing okay. <laughs> they're doing okay. So you know, one of my favorite opioid sparing superheroes is Sanjay Sinha, who oh, yeah. is, you know, you're you know, the head of your regional anesthesia department. And Sanjay has just, has been a real leader in this process. And And tell me about your relationship with him and working with him.
1: So he's brilliant. Uh, we moved uh, our practice, uh, Ted Kennan, uh, my partner and I, were practicing primarily at Waterbury Hospital. And then St. Francis had started the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. And that was a unique collaboration between the surgeons at St. Francis Hospital, the joint surgeons, and the anesthesiologist and the administration. And they were really able to put together the programs that all of us dream about where things run efficiently, uh, everyone uh, has kind of cr- uh, cross uh, specialty respect and uh, thing, and the surgeons and the anesthesiologists really make a lot of the administrative decisions. And that was the brainchild of, of the people who were there at the time. And that included Sanjay, and that included Bob McAllister, and, and Steve Schutzer, and included uh, Chris Dadalus, who was the administrator there. So when we moved our practice over there, it was great. And one of the best things was meeting the anesthesiologists like Sanjay, who had great ideas and would talk to us and wouldn't cancel our cases. And We would talk to them, and, and if they had a concern, we could deal with it because we knew they didn't want to cancel our cases just to get out. And uh, Over time, we were doing a lot of uh, teaching labs also, teaching hip, teaching uh, knee surgery, and Sanjay always had an interest in following up after the lab and and looking at the dissections and dissecting out the tiniest little nerves through the hip or through the knee to understand where they went because he wanted to do better and better and better with nerve blocks he was so interested in nerve blocks and he took i mean all the time hours and hours to do these dissections to learn the individual you know variable anatomy that people had and then he's come up over the years with these suggestions that at first sounded crazy that they would work and absolutely they work and the patients are so benefited by it it's great
0: yeah 100 percent. i mean he literally you know the neuroanatomy you know, we've been so you know we use anest- we we use uh, local anesthetics and things like that because you can numb up the nerves at the local area. But if you know the region, the neuroanatomy, you can create this this nerve block that can create longer term pain relief. You can avoid the motor nerves. So the people that are listening, it's really important. You want to get just the sensory nerves if you can, because you don't want to have somebody not have control of their ability to walk or to move their leg. You just want to be able to block the pain. And so Sanjay came up with the IPAC block and was a leader with a Dr. Canal blocks. And and now he's got his new company with his neuromodulation device, which I think is going to be a complete home run. So Absolutely. good for him. But what a what a pleasure it must have been to be able to work with someone who's a thought leader like yourself, who who's really trying to put the patients at, at, at first in their experience, right. That, you know, joint replacements, you know, now you've moved to outpatient. What's your percentage of outpatient surgery for total joint replacements compared to inpatient?
1: Yeah, probably 15% now and and everyone else the, the vast majority of everybody else goes home in 23 hours. I mean, let's just say it's 15% same day. And then another, uh, you know, another 80%, uh, 23 hour. And then there's that small number of people who, who stay more than that, but. It's been great. I mean, we've tried to, we've been refining the surgical techniques over the years, but I think the hugest leaps, you know, in the last, uh, you know, short period of time, last several years has been all of these anesthesia uh, and medication and perioperative management advances that have been fantastic.
0: Yeah. It's really been fantastic for the patient. Then the pandemic comes along and now all the patients are on board saying, I don't want to go to the big white building with sick patients <laughs> in it. You know, let's, I want to go home. I want to be right. in my house and that idea. I mean, when you and I started, I mean, I was at the New England Baptist Hospital and they'd be admitted to the hospital side for three days, then they'd go to the rehab side for like seven days. And That's I mean, awesome. it and, and they were in the hospital, you know, before that, like for up to a week. So it's really amazing now that they can literally walk out of a surgery center the same day without right. complaining of pain. It's really, really a, a very remarkable feat that we've accomplished at this point. So one of the, so I would go through a few things, which you're, you're very well known for. Uh, and, and, you know, this is, it's like the Republicans and and the Democrats, you know, as far as, yeah you know, the total hip replacement, are you going anterior or are you going posterior? And, you know, we had, we had Rand Schwarzkopf on who I'm sure, you know, from NYU yep. Langone. And, and so Rand, I, we asked him this very specific question and I loved his response. And I'm going to ask you to, to respond as well, but his response was, well, You should go to a surgeon that does that procedure all the time and is really good. So if a guy does a posterior hip approach and he's been doing that for 10 or 15 years and his results are good, you're good to go. If you go to an anterior hip approach guy and that's what he's been doing forever, you're good to go. But for the audience, for for our non-orthopedic listeners out there, you know, what do you, let's walk through what you say to your patients, because you're an anterior hip approach expert. And so, you know, when they come to you say, hey, doctor, should I do the anterior? And should I do the posterior? What's the advantages of the anterior hip approach?
1: Why do you do it? And, and why do your patients come to you to have the procedure? Yeah, I think there are definitely uh, advantages to it. And I agree with Rand. I, I think he's right on that. And you can have a great result with an anterior or a posterior result or with an anterior or posterior approach. And uh, you definitely have to see someone who does a lot of it. But I still think the anterior, I do it because I think it's better from the standpoint that patients recover generally faster, and that's well supported in the literature, that by six weeks or eight weeks at this point, I mean, we used to say at a year, everybody's equal, anterior, posterior, and that was true. And then six months, everyone's equal because of these advances in perioperative medicine. Now we're down to six or eight weeks. If you have a talented posterior approach surgeon, you'll be at the same spot as an anterior approach at 8 weeks or 6 weeks but the difference is people are going back to work long before 6 or 8 weeks uh, no one wants to take 6 or 8 weeks out of their schedule whether you're employed or you're working or not i mean you don't want to be 6 or 8 weeks away from doing stuff with your grandchildren you don't want to be 6 or 8 weeks away from golfing you know and you don't want to be 6 or 8 weeks away from work necessarily so anterior approach patients generally do rehab faster And so you can be back to work faster and back to your activity sooner. That's the main, that's the main advantage. There are other advantages of probably a lower risk of blood clots uh, is another one. Uh, And so people do get up and around faster and they're more comfortable. Generally narcotic requirements are less with an anterior approach. uh, And, you know, people are just more comfortable faster. No, I think
0: that's a fascinating point. And, And, you know, it's easy probably for the posterior hip guys to say, well, you know, it's six to eight weeks, you know, what's the big deal? But if you are the patient, you know, and, and you want to get back to work sooner, there's a corollary for us in rotator cuff surgery. So, you know, my patients, you know, the personal experience is super important to that patient at eight weeks is two months of their life. And it's so a long time. <laughs> if you're either in a lot of pain or you're lying around and you're not doing stuff then you know, you'd be a lot happier if you were moving. So now with rotator cuff surgery, instead of putting a big black abduction pillow on for six weeks and then starting physical therapy, many more of us are now starting, you know, an aggressive range of motion protocol. And then we're doing the scaling blocks, which, so they're not getting as much pain. So you can have a rotator cuff repair and have reasonable functional range of motion within two weeks and be back to work for most jobs, obviously if you're a laborer or not, but, but I I think that's a great point. I do believe that that six to eight week margin for the patient experience is important for people. So I think that's a great take home uh, point for our listeners, for, for people that are out there. But I think at the end of the day, if you go to a gray hair that's doing posterior hip, where you go to a gray hair that's doing anterior hip, you're probably going to still get a good long-term result Absolutely. by the right, by the right yeah. person. So another passion that you have within the total joint space is robotics and surgery. Uh, and, you know, for the longest time, uh, there's always pushback from, from from people that are not doing new technology, right? Innovation requires the courage to try something new and different. You have to get across the chasm to make it mainstream, the commentary always was, well, that we don't have outcomes that really ever show that there's a difference, you know, between between one and the other. But I think more and more people are recognizing that technology helps us, right? GPS, having a ways in your car. Why not have help in the operating room as well? So so give us your how did you get involved
1: in robotics, the evolution of robotics in your practice, and, and what are you doing right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I was one of those guys who didn't see the value of robotics for, for a long time, because I didn't, the technology wasn't really on point enough. It was it was GPS, but it was GPS that was really accurate in getting us to maybe where we didn't need to go. So the technology morphed over time, uh, and particularly the technology that, that, that uh, I've been using with uh, omnibotics, I thought, really, when I met that group of uh, people, they had the kind of the right combination, the right machine that was not only doing the GPS aspect of things, but it also, they had a way of measuring the knee that wasn't static. It was dynamic. It measured the ligaments. It applied a pressure inside the joint, and it took care of all the questions I had about precision and about getting a real picture of the knee. So with that, I made the transition then, and at that point then, you could dismiss the, the questions of, uh, does it take extra time, for example? And it, I studied that. It took me seven extra minutes to, to do uh, these navigation cases. So seven minutes is, is fine with me for a much better result. And so now, and over time now, we have the patient-reported outcomes uh, in a validated way that show better balanced knees, better aligned knees, have a better short and long term result, or I should say, have a better long term and short term result. We, we were able to establish long term results through some of the registries and things like that. But now we have short term patient reported outcomes, that, you know, in at three months, six months, one year, that show better outcomes. And now we have ninety six percent of patients satisfied at one year, compared to kind of the the really you know mediocre eighty to eighty five percent that we were, that you and I were used to when we first started, which was. Yeah, we can do your knee and, and you know, good chance you'll feel better. But, you know, you have to warn people that, you know, 20 percent of the time you're still going to hurt going up and down the stairs. You know, some things you're going to hurt with. That has really reduced dramatically with robotics and computer navigation. So I am very excited about it.
0: You know, I, and I think that's uh, that, that's really an interesting point, because, I mean, the, the old school thought was, you know, 85 percent of people are going to tell you they love their knee. Ten percent are going to tell you, well, it's better than it was. And 5%, we're going to say to you, I don't like it. It's no better than it was. I'm still in pain and it hurts. So, so, so 96%, is that what you're, you're yep. good to excellent are? That's a pretty impressive number.
1: Yeah, that's based on, we're doing a prospective study uh, with the amibiotic system. So it's a prospective study, um, multi-center across the country. And those patients get all their you know proms and we have all their intraoperative data and we follow them and then patient satisfaction. And we have 96% now, actually at 96% at two years for uh, well over 200 patients and well over 400 patients at one year, again, 96% satisfied, satisfied or or very satisfied.
0: That's, that's amazing. So let's talk, let's, let's dive deeper a little bit for our listeners. So what does this mean? So we talk about navigation, we talk about robotics. So just take us through the entire experience, you know, in layman's terms, so people can understand as to what's happening during the surgery.
1: Right. So robotics is what people hear about, right? We hear about, people will come in and ask about robotic knees. It's really, there are two parts to that. There's computer navigation and there's robotics. Now, we've had computer navigation for a long time. And that's where it was contributing some to better alignment, but we, we weren't really assessing balance properly. There wasn't a good way to assess, to assess whether the knee was too tight or too sloppy. And those patients who were not satisfied, those that, that 15 or 20% of people who were not satisfied were people who probably had... Balance that was not optimal in the knee, that wasn't enough like their own native knee to feel right or feel good or function as well as they wanted it to. And we were getting good results by just aligning people properly most of the time, that 80 or 85% of the time, it worked for most people. But there was that group of people who just had a different kind of knee. Maybe they had more stiffness in the knee or they had more uh, misalignment of the knee and they needed something a little bit different to assess their particular case. So, so computer navigation gave us alignment. Robotics is really something that allows you to execute the plan. So the most popular robotic systems, I have computer guided saws, for example. But robotics can also comprise other things, which include devices that can be controlled by the computer that do certain things to the knee, so you can measure parts of the knee, which then you can take that information right during the surgery and make, use that information to make a plan or modify your plan it's based on that patient's specific uh, anatomy or specific ligaments and make better choices right then and there for how you place the components. And that's what results in, uh, in better outcomes, I think. So the system we use does exactly that. It's got a robotic, two robotic parts. One robotic part you use for making the cuts, and that's great. And that's very precise and nice. But the most important part is what's called the balance spot where you put that in the knee and you measure the ligaments in the whole range of motion and you get an understanding of that patient's knee. And then you make your choices about where you're gonna cut the knee precisely based on that patient's ligaments at that moment in time. And I think that's what the success is.
0: Interesting, so it's a real dynamic process. Is there a CT scan preoperatively involved or is it all done intra-op?
1: It's all done intra-op, which is a great savings, I think. So there's there's not the hassle of having to go get your CT scan. Uh, it's all done intra-op. And the importance of that is, as you you know, but for the listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll explain, as you uh, open up a knee to do the surgery, you're loosening up little parts of ligaments of the knee just in terms of exposing the knee to get to where you have to get. So when you measure the knee after you've done all that, you get an accurate picture of the knee, whereas a CT scan will show you the anatomy of the knee, but it won't necessarily show you how the knee moves and wiggles and twists. And whereas this technology does.
0: That's awesome. So as we're, as we're getting close to to closing here, I always like to try and provide some counsel to our listeners, both patients as well as doctors. So uh, if you could give like one or two salient points to patients that are listening right now, they're, they're contemplating joint replacement, give them a couple pieces of advice as to what you might ask your doctor, or how you're going to find your doctor to take care of them.
1: Well, as you said before, I, I think I think uh, someone's experience is key. I, these days, orthopedics, uh, uh, for better, I think, has become very specialized. So, you know, I, I do just hip and knee replacement. You know, you're doing sports. You know, people do hand, people do foot. I, I think that's the way you want to go with someone who does a lot of that. And so don't hesitate to ask. You know, patients will ask me very sheepishly sometimes, how you know, how many of these do you do? I welcome the question, I, you know. You don't want me to do your ACL, uh, you know, because, but I will do your hip replacement and your place cuz I've done thousands and thousands of those. So don't hesitate to ask that question. Don't hesitate to ask questions. And I would say don't hesitate to go to the doctor at least to begin to find out the option because some patients will say, "I didn't want to come in sooner. I was just afraid to discuss it." No one's going to, you know, drag you to the OR. We're happy to talk to patients. That's what we're here for. We love it, right? We go, this is what we enjoy is talking to people, educating people. And, and, you know, if people come in and, and they say, this is great information, I, I'm gathering information, that's great. Uh, you know, we want people to decide to have surgery when they want to have surgery, when it makes sense for them, for their family, for their job. Uh, so uh, come in and, and talk to your, talk to a surgeon and, uh, but find a surgeon you like, you ha- it has to be a good match. You have to like the surgeon, you have to feel comfortable. And that's, that's the way to go.
0: Yeah. So to sum that up, you're going to go, want to go to somebody that does a lot of them. It's nice to find somebody that you get along well with and don't be afraid to ask questions. I think that's really great advice, you know, for patients. So, so again, you know, you've been doing this for about three decades or more at this point. So we got a couple of uh, 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 joint replacement fellows that are just graduating. They're listening right now. What piece of advice would you give them as they're starting their joint replacement practice and moving into care for patients?
1: Well, that, that's, uh, that's a, you know, a a stretch back to, to remember, you know, back in the day. But you know, the, I think the key point is take your time. You know, everyone's anxious to get going and build their practice. Uh, but really, the key is meet patients and learn their concerns. And listen. You know, it's to listen because when you listen, you learn a lot. And I, I think uh, I was fortunate; I had that advice when I was young, and uh, that really helped me. Uh, and then your your practice builds. You don't. You almost don't have to advertise. I mean, I think in some ways, if you communicate with patients, they're your biggest advocates.
0: Yeah. In this day and age of social media, they all talk to each other. They all want to know what their personal experience has been, and they will be your best advocate without a doubt, for sure. Hey, John, this has been fantastic. You know, this is what we do in the ortho show. We love to have, fantastic you know, really unique orthopedic surgeons. We really thank you for your, you know, three decades or more of service to, to orthopedics and for really making hip and knee replacement. Uh, much more of of a better personal experience for the patients. It's really been a pleasure having you on.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's been a great ride. We're looking for more, more fun ahead.
0: All right. Fantastic, John. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Until next time.